And I thank you, Emmaus, for the message of that song, My Soul Cries Out. It's a perfect match for what we'll consider this day. The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the 15th chapter. After going out from that place, Jesus then went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that area came and cried out, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is horribly demon-possessed. But Jesus did not answer her with a single word. Then his disciples came and begged him, Send her away, because she keeps crying out after us. So he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and bowed down before him and said, Lord, help me. It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs, Jesus said. Yes, Lord, she replied, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, Woman, your faith is great. Let what you want be done for you. And her daughter was healed from that hour. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise you. Please be seated. Forgive me while I adjust to the desert. We have liquid air where I'm more recently from. Good morning to you all. Well, that sounded a little tentative. Maybe you're a little nervous. Could be. I mean, there's a lot of things we can be nervous about. Um, If you listen to that lesson, there's a lot of tension in it. There's a lot of opposing forces and, and conflict. And I'll talk a little bit about that today, but maybe that's why you feel a little bit uneasy. Maybe... If you've uh, looked at your faith website uh, in recent days, there's been a message from your call committee about this guy who's going to preach today. And I've got to tell you, it's hard for anybody to live up to what they described on that. It was more than flattering, and I'm, I'm very grateful to, uh, to all who, who did that. And I don't know how I'm going to be able to satisfy uh, their description of me. Um... Perhaps there are other reasons for you to feel a bit pensive today, old-fashioned word. Maybe it's the division and the change that our world has taken on. Some of you may not have been in this sanctuary since the pandemic began. I don't know. But now you've come back and it's different. You have blue tape and colored dots. Many of you consider yourselves to have assigned seats, and now you can't sit there because it doesn't or it does have a dot, right? And so we're spread out, and we're not in groups, and it just doesn't feel right. We're separated in other ways. We have masks that that conceal us one from the other. We have six or more feet between us as we, we greet one another. All these things and the disease itself tend to make us uneasy this time. Perhaps you're feeling that this morning. Maybe you're taking a look at me and thinking, how's this guy going to fit in? I mean, look, he showed up to Albuquerque in the middle of summer in a black suit, right? Probably not the way most of you, in fact, that's not the way any of you went this morning. I, I I can put your fears aside on that one. You have a pastor on the staff here who, when he came for his call sermon, wore a three piece wool suit in the summer. 
I'll fit right in, it seems, right? And maybe it's none of those things that cause you to be a little uneasy right now. And I think you should feel a little uneasy right now because you have a very important reason to feel nervous, a very important reason. You see, there was a guy named Luther. He lived 500 years ago, right? And Luther was, by the just pure, pure circumstances of his life, forming a church where none had existed before, that which we call the Lutheran or, or the Protestant church. And he had no succession of bishops who had laid hands on people to make them parish pastors or priests. He was starting, as, in essence, from scratch. So Luther did what he always does. He goes to the scriptures, and he seeks guidance there. And what he finds is that it is the work of the Holy Spirit that defines who the leader of a congregation is going to be. And the work of the Holy Spirit happens through the congregation itself. The, the Spirit comes among us, and it directs hearts. That's what you're about. You're agents of God. You're agents of God. So I'm going to invite you to do something as you try to get rid of that tension best you can. I want you to take a deep breath. Just breathe in. Take in the clean Albuquerque air while I get some more water. <clears throat> I apologize. Take another breath. There's an Old Testament word, <clears throat> and that word happens to sound like what it means. And the word is ruah. I have to say it way back here. Ruah. And it has three meanings. It can mean wind, which doesn't really apply to us this morning, but it can mean breath. So as you breathe in, you're taking in the ruah. But it has a third meaning means spirit. It was the Ruah, the spirit of God that blew over the waters at the beginning of creation. It is that Ruah that settles into your heart now and will guide those decisions that you make as, as this day unfolds. We trust the spirit, but you are an agent of that spirit as well. So trust in the spirit to guide you in those things that are ahead for us. Hopefully, that breathing in a taking in of the Spirit makes you feel a little better, a little less on edge right now. You have a helper. Now it's my turn to be nervous because I have to preach. And so I'll begin. I'll begin now as the way the Apostle Paul began when he addressed letters to the congregations he loved. Grace and peace to you all from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. <clears throat> I turn your attention now back to the gospel lesson that I shared with you a few moments ago. And in particular, pay attention to the woman in this gospel lesson. It is said by Matthew, and Matthew puts a lot of detail into just a few words. He's a master at that. But he says that this woman is from the region of Tyre and Sidon. And what we know of this region in the ancient world is that people from that area worship pagan gods. They were not Jews. They knew nothing of the Jewish traditions. But when he said she is from that region, he's giving us even more information. She's not a sophisticated lady from the big cities of Tyre and Sidon. 
She's from the outlying areas. Doesn't have the benefit of much of an education, probably. But she comes to Jesus nonetheless. Matthew also tells us that she's a Canaanite. Oh, and is that word packed with meaning and history and conflict. Matthew's gospel was written, we believe, mostly for a Jewish audience, people converting from Judaism to what was the fledgling Christianity. And all of those Jews in Matthew's audience wouldn't need much explanation about what it meant to be a Canaanite. They wouldn't need it because the hostility between the Israelites and the Canaanites had existed for centuries and centuries. That, that conflict goes all the way back to the time of Noah. Noah. You see, Canaan was the son of Ham. Ham, one of Noah's three sons. And it was Ham who had the misfortune or the bad decision-making, can't tell which, to actually see his father naked toward the end of Noah's life. This was great shame to Noah. So he issued a curse that is found in Genesis chapter 9. And the curse reads this way. Cursed be Canaan, lowest of slaves shall he be to his brothers. Blessed by the Lord my God be Shem, and let Canaan be his slave. May God make space for Japheth, and let him live in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan also be his slave. So the line of Canaan is made into enslavement of the other two sons of Noah. But even worse than that ancient curse that Noah issued about being slaves to the other Jews is a promise that was made to Abraham by the Lord himself. And that promise read, And I will give to you, Abraham, and to your offspring after you, the land where you now live as an alien. I will give you all the land of Canaan. You will have it for a perpetual holding. And I, I will be your ancestor's God. And then we know that the Canaanites were among the peoples that uh, Joshua, when leading the people after their 40 years of wandering, when he crossed the Jordan River, Joshua and the people were commanded to wipe from the face of the earth those people in the promised land, Canaanites among them. Joshua did not fulfill that command of the Lord. Now, all these historical events pile up into one word that Matthew uses. And every Jew would have known all of this history. But every bit is important. Every Canaanite knew the history, too. So, with all of that background, I ask you, why would this Canaanite woman come and ask for help so desperately from a Jewish rabbi, Jesus of Nazareth. Why in the world would she choose to do that? Well, why do you take yourself and put yourself at the feet of the Lord when you are suffering in your life? Why do almost everybody do that? Because there are many things in this life that we cannot resolve by human uh, human powers. We turn to the Lord to save us from those things that we cannot save ourselves from, obviously from death and, and from every other affliction we can think of. We turn to the Lord to save us. And this woman does exactly that. 
she turns to the Lord because she has nowhere else to go, no place else to turn where salvation for her daughter is to be found. Now, granted, maybe she heard about Jesus' miracles as he wandered through Galilee, although communication between Galilee and Canaan was pretty close to zero, and they didn't have Twitter or Facebook or any of those things to announce what Jesus was doing moment by moment. So that's less likely. But one thing we do know about this woman, one thing that definitely motivated her, is that her need, her need to save her daughter was tremendously great. And her concern for that young lady, for her daughter, was so deep that she dared cross the division of hatred that existed between the Israelites and the Canaanites. That had been built up for centuries, and she didn't care. She stepped right over the line. She was at the point where she had nothing else to lose, and this Canaanite woman had everything to gain. So she comes and she cries out for help to the Lord Jesus. Now it's interesting. Crying out for Jesus' help happens a lot in the 14th and 15th chapters of Matthew's Gospel. This isn't the only place, this woman. Just a few paragraphs before, we heard of Peter, who was trying to walk on the water, and he cried out to the Lord as he began to sink after a couple of steps. He did that when he was meeting Christ in the midst of a storm. Matthew tells us again of that experience, along with the rest of the disciples who experienced that crying out as well as they remained in the boat and cried out for Jesus' help. Excuse me one more time. <clears throat> Thank you. So the cries of, the, of Peter and this woman are one of the ways that these two stories are interconnected. And the other way is a word that is repeated in these two stories of Peter on the water and this woman in the streets. And this word is used again and again and again. And it's a difficult word for our, our English-speaking uh, ears to hear. And the word is crotzo. Crotzo. And it's, it's used to describe the sounds of these screaming people. Originally, the word was made up by the Greeks to imitate the sound of a raven. Now, I'm told by the other congregations I've talked to or the other groups of people I've talked to this weekend, we really do have ravens here in, in Albuquerque. Oh boy, are they everywhere on, on our island in Alaska. Only bald eagles outnumber them. We got lots of those too. But ravens are everywhere and as we take walks on the seaside or, or on the hills, we hear their voice. And then if they hear ours, they'll mimic us and we'll talk back and forth. But if a raven were to say this crotzo word, it would sound something like crotzo which my wife begged me not to say here. <laughs> Jessica really did. But it's, it's key to understanding what goes on here. Over time in the ancient world, this, this crotzo word was, was taken to have a greater meaning. It meant anybody who screamed out, anybody who, who sought help in a desperate way, and it was their tone of voice being described. And so by using this word again and again, Matthew is implying that the sounds that come from Peter earlier and now come from this woman are not pleasant to hear. It's crotzo. 
And it's this fear crotzo word that the disciples made in the boat when they thought they were going to be swamped in the storm. And when they thought they saw a ghost walking on the water that was really Jesus. Same sound, crotzo. Crotzo is a tone of voice that Peter uses, both when he asks Jesus to command him to come out on the water and later when he sinks. And he uses that tone of voice when he cries out, Lord, save me. And now this woman, in that crotzo voice, cries out, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is horribly demon-possessed. And crotzo is used one more time in the lesson I shared with you this morning. It's how the, descri the disciples describe the noise that is coming from that woman, and will you please send her away, Jesus? They crotzo that, se that sentiment. In fairness to the disciples, I ask you, if somebody in this beautiful place were to screech out in a crotzo voice right now, would we wish the ushers would remove that person? That's exactly how the disciples reacted to that raven screeching plea for help to this woman in the streets. Anyway, these cries from help, whether it's from Peter or this woman in front of Jesus, are cries of desperation and trust in the Lord to save them. What's really interesting, I think, about all of this is that Jesus uses a term in Matthew's telling for this woman that is used nowhere else, anywhere, in Matthew's gospel. This woman, out of Jesus' mouth, is described to be of great faith. Again, nowhere else, no one else, anywhere in this gospel is described in that way. But think about it. Why would Jesus say that about her? I mean, she didn't walk on water, even for a couple of steps like Peter. She didn't move a mountain, which Jesus said even a little faith could do. She didn't do that. She had probably never been to anything that a Jew or us would describe as a church ever in her whole life. She certainly would not have read the existing Hebrew scriptures at that time, those things that we now find in our Bible. Canaanites would have never seen such things. So what's so great about this woman's faith? Why would Jesus use that term for her? Well, it's not just Matthew saying this. Remember, it is Jesus who says she is of great faith. And when we examine this woman's behavior, we do not find that she walked up to Jesus and, and approached him, and she was in somehow bragging or talking about or, or qualifying herself with her own great faith. She never said, I really believe in you, and since I believe in you, Jesus, why, I need you to do something for me. There was no bargain like that. Peter did. Lord, if you command me to walk on the water, I shall. Hmm. Pretty good bargain for Peter. This woman does not approach Jesus with anything that she thinks is great or that she would describe as great. She has no great faith, as I said. She has no track record of obedience to God's law. She has no religious piety of any kind or, or religious practice. 
She comes before Jesus with one great big nothing. Nothing. No knowledge of Jewish law. She has no knowledge of, of God's commandments issued through the Jews. She doesn't have any religious training. She wasn't in any way centering her life on the Lord God of Israel. Not at all. Perhaps we should define her great faith as coming to Jesus with just that, with that nothing. She comes with nothing to offer to him, and yet she trusts him. She trusts in Jesus to give her what she so desperately cries out in need for. There's a legend I really want to believe is true, and I do. But it is said that when Martin Luther died in bed, when they found him in the morning, they looked through his pockets, and they found a little piece of paper. And there in his handwriting were three words. We are beggars. Maybe the way we ought to approach Christ is as this woman does and as Luther describes. We approach Christ as beggars. Again, remember, this, this whole story of this woman comes very closely after Peter's encounter walking on the water. And she has the great faith, but Jesus declared Peter's effort as that of little faith. And I don't think it's an accident that these two things are put together. They're meant to be a contrast, a deliberate contrast between this woman and Peter. If this one woman had said, similar to Peter did, if you are the son of David, command my daughter to be healed, then she would be in the same category as Peter. She would be tempting the Lord. She would be putting God to the test. She might be told something like, get behind me, Satan, for doing such things. Now, I believe that like this woman, there are people of great faith among us all the time. Every century, every day, every moment, right here, right now. These people of great faith may not be members of a church council or a call committee. They may not have seminary degrees. They may not receive recognition as being long-standing members of an influential congregation. These people I'm talking about may or may not even appear in a church directory at all. These people of great faith, they cry out in pain. They cry out with that crozzo voice, the pain that they suffer living in this life. And in this period in which we live, we all suffer that pain, that pain of separation, or that pain of loss, or that pain of fear of living in the world. But they call out in pain, and they trust that God will deliver what they need to heal them. They will be delivered from their torment, whatever it may be, by a God who loves them. This morning, and don't limit it to this morning, every moment of your life, listen. Listen and see if you can hear those who are crying out with that crozzo voice, Listen for their pain and their trust in the Lord. And as you do, ask yourself the all-important question. 
Will you cast aside the divisions that have always been in the world and work across those divisions to heal those people in pain? Will you be Jesus' hands and feet in the world and do those things? We are no longer Israelites and Canaanites who despise each other for centuries. We are one people of God across every division. We are one people brought together in unity by the love and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. One people. Will you listen for those who call out, whether they are in this congregation or beyond this congregation's walls and membership? And will you apply yourselves, trusting in that ruach, that spirit that comes within us, to fill you up and show you ways that we can work past these barriers that separate us, past even the barriers that we've erected in this time of COVID-19, finding ways to reach out and, and helping those in pain. You're doing that already. There are probably, I heard two examples of that from Pastor Jerry this morning as he offered the announcements, ways of helping youngsters in school who are struggling with life. There's so many ways that we can reach out as a people of God. This morning, I've talked to you over and over again about little faith and great faith. And all those faith words had a, a small f. But apply this with a capital F. The people of faith. Well, the people of faith apply themselves to what they learn about Jesus here and take Jesus to the world, to those who suffer and hurt. That's the call for this congregation. Now and always, heed the call. Go with the Spirit and go with God. And may the little crumbs of faith that we have satisfy the great need for faith of those who crotzo their cries for the Lord in our world. Amen.